Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. What does the word disruptive mean to you? It means going beyond the ordinary, going beyond the status quo. Not thinking in the conventional way, not just sort of following the herd. Disruptive means shaking things up, you know? Disruptive entrepreneur is somebody who sees the problem and embraces the problem with a new way. Shake up and awakening. Quality will take care of itself and you'll go from being disruptive but also profitable. When you use your reservoir of talent, when you love what you do, then you disrupt. Mix it up, change it up and dominate. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Hi, it's Rob Moore here, and welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. Now, I know I always get excited when it's interview time. It's interview time again, and I'm excited again. So the man I'm about to interview is very, very famous in his niche. Now, the thing I try and do with the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast to make it different, to make it unique, is only interview guests that matter, that I believe you'll love, Uh, And there's a reason and a concept for them being on the podcast. I could easily pay people and I could get big names just because they're big names. But Seth Godin, who you're going to hear from in a minute, I've read pretty much all of his books, listened to all of his audio books, and his unique take on marketing and brand and business has had a direct and positive impact in my life way back from when I started business 12 years ago. And get this, he's the author of 18 books, many of them bestsellers around the world, translated into 35 languages. So Seth writes on the post-industrial revolution. He writes on the way ideas spread, on marketing, on quitting and not quitting, and leadership, and most of all, change. He's written famous books like Lynchpin, Tribes, The Dip, and Purple Cow. He founded Yoyodyne and Squidoo and then sold one of those to Yahoo, I believe. His blog is one of the most popular blogs in the whole world. He was recently inducted into the Direct Marketing Hall of Fame. And his newest book, What to Do When It's Your Turn, is already a bestseller. So let's go here with the interview with Seth Godin. Thanks for joining the Disruptive Entrepreneur podcast. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for making it. Hey, look, my pleasure. And um, I know you're very, very well known and popular in America. And whilst you are here in the UK too, um, could you give us a bit of a Seth life to death? (laughs) So I'm sorry for the cheesy uh, rhyme, but maybe a a few minutes of your story. Uh, So I'm a teacher. I've been a teacher since I was 17. My mission is to help people see the world a little differently and to use their opportunity to make a change happen. And uh, I started by believe it or not, in northern Canada, teaching canoeing to people. Uh, Then I taught computer science a little bit in college. And since then, I've been on the edge of marketing and entrepreneurship, as well as digging deeper into understanding how humans do their work, how we deal with our fear, how we connect with other people. Along the way, I've written 18 best-selling books. I have one of the most popular blogs in the world. And I run two online seminars that are changing people's lives. One is called the Alt-MBA, and the other one is called the Marketing Seminar. Where do we start? So um, I was really intrigued when you say see the world differently. So what does seeing the world differently mean to you? Well, I'll start with a trivial example. Uh, When I got my first and only real job, it was 1983, and uh, they hadn't invented voicemail yet. They were just installing a fax machine when I got there. And we had those little pink while you were out slips that people would write messages on. And at the front desk was uh, a little carousel with 40 slots in it. 
and each slot had someone's name carefully written. While you were out, if you got a message, the receptionist would write it on a pink slip of paper and put it in your slot. And so when you got back from lunch, you would spin it, spin it, spin it till it got to your name because it wasn't in alphabetical order. It was in the order that people were hired. And then you would grab your slip. Well, I got there my first day. I was 23 years old. And I looked at this and I said, every single day, I'm going to have to spin this thing. That makes no sense. So I took a paperclip out of the little paperclip dispenser and put a paperclip next to my name. So that way I could just spin to the paperclip and I'd be fine. And within three days, the entire thing was festooned with flags and little images and multiple paper clips. Because once people saw that there was this shortcut, everyone said, obviously, I should do that. So I don't think I committed an act of Einsteinian genius there. I just think that when I look at the world, I view it through the eyes of a designer. What's it for? Who's it for? Who am I trying to change? How could this be better? And too often, we get seduced by the status quo into believing that it is the way it is, and we should just live with it. And I think that once you see what it could be, then as an entrepreneur, you have an amazing opportunity to be in the world differently and to create value. So you, as you stated in your very quick, uh, short bio, you're very much into marketing and whatever into might mean, I'll let you explain that. Um, I've certainly in the last 10 years seen a huge change in the world of marketing and brand and you're at the forefront of that. So um, how do you see that the world of marketing and brand and getting your message out there has changed over the last decade? Well, when you and I were growing up, marketing and advertising were the same thing. That the idea was spend money to interrupt people, as many people as you can afford. And if you interrupt enough people, some of them will pay you back in money and then you have enough money to interrupt more people. And when the internet came along, it freaked out marketers. And so it's not 10 years, I've been writing about this for 25 years now. It freaked out marketers because it's the first medium in history that wasn't invented to make marketers happy. That's really worth noting, that television was built so they would have a place to put TV ads. The shows came second. That radio existed to run radio ads. But the internet was not built to run ads. And in fact, there is no useful, scalable method for buying attention on the internet. And as soon as marketers saw the internet, the least ethical among them started spamming people with email, which still continues to this day. Uh, and spam, the concept of spam, is perfect for the selfish short-term marketer. Because the concept of spam is, it doesn't cost me anything to interrupt you. And if it doesn't work, I'll just do something else. And what we've discovered as humans is that the one thing we're never going to get anything any more of is attention. And if marketers can take our attention anytime they want to, we're in trouble. And so we've put up all these barriers, these filters, these attention filters, because we're bombarded with more messages than ever before. And so these people who call themselves marketers and who use words like branding they don't really understand what's going on now. Modern marketing is not about new, clever ways to interrupt people. It's not about grand openings. It's not about making a giant impact. Modern marketing is being missed if you were gone. Modern marketing is earning trust through connection. It's about being of service. And in particular, it's about serving the smallest viable market. 
Not the biggest one, but the smallest one. So for example, this podcast is one of the most popular of its kind in the UK. And yet, 99% of the people on the planet Earth have never heard of it. And that's fine, because it's not for them. And by not trying to build a podcast for everyone, you have built a podcast that's worth listening to. Right, and um, I'm flattered that you said 99% of the Right, world I was being generous. Of, but it's, yeah, you were, thank you for being so kind. Um, you've built a huge blog, and actually, Seth, I've read pretty much all of your books. Um, I may have missed one or two, forgive me. And you know, when I got into the world of marketing, when I set up my own business, which was 12 years ago, you, know, you were one of the people that inspired me. Um, and I think it's easy to look at you and go, oh, you know, he's been successful uh, and forget the fact that you've taken 25 years to build this following and to get your message out there and to get your voice. So how does someone start today wanting to be an influence, wanting to put great work into the world? But we haven't got 25 years worth of followers like you have. But neither did I. Right. Mm, and so the shortcut will always fail you. Always. That the long mm. road is the best method. And that method is tell 10 people. And if those 10 people think it's great, they'll bring their friends. And if they don't, make better stuff. Make better stuff. Keep making better stuff for 10 people. And if you can serve them in a way that delights them, in a way that creates value for both of you, they'll ask for more. And it seems really simple. And it makes people who sell boring products to boring people very uncomfortable because they are used to a method where you can sell boring stuff to boring people. But that method is gone. And Amazon has proven it's gone. And eBay has proven it's gone. And any market that gets efficient, you know, if you're an average Uber driver for average Uber customers, well, then Uber is just going to give you the next customer in line. You're not going to get paid extra. You're just a commodity. Mm -hmm. Well, we're all being Uber drivered. And the opportunity instead is to be one of a kind, a category of one, somebody that people don't want to substitute for. Right, and um, I speak to a lot of people who don't think they're creative. You know, they've, they've done these personality profiling tests. Oh, well, I'm not one of those types. Or they don't think they're unique or they don't think they're special. Now, I don't think that's true. What would you say to people like that? Well, it's obviously utter nonsense, but let's understand why they want to believe it. They want to believe it because it lets them off the hook. If you are capable of a contribution, then if you don't make that contribution, it's on you. If you are capable of taking responsibility and you don't, then you're doing something that you shouldn't be proud of. Then what we prefer is to be let off the hook. Uh, my boss won't let me. My personality test says I'm not like that. But the fact is you are on the hook. There are two billion people a click away from wherever you are that at least once in your life you told a joke that was funny, at least once in your life you helped someone who needed help. If you can do it once, the only question is, can you do it twice? And the answer is, of course you can. So what I believe, and what most of my work has been over the last few years, is not about the right answer, because the right answer isn't very hard to find. It's about why don't you want the right answer? And the reason is because we're all afraid. Right, and how do we overcome that fear? You can't overcome the fear. The fear can never go away. What you can do is you can learn to dance with the fear. You can use the fear as a compass. You can realize that when the fear shows up, you might be onto something. And if you run from the fear, you will always be running from the fear. 
But if you learn to dance with the fear, you can dance with it whenever you want to. Right. And if people are worried about, you know, the, the, the plethora of online trolling and, you know, the, the security of the world we're living in, do you have a, a take on that? Yeah, I mean, there, I have a long list of things to worry about. I will begin with the fact that the earth is melting and our atmosphere has cancer. I will move on to the fact that the media is tearing down so many things that we enjoyed believing in, uh, that they make a profit by making people unhappy. I will move on to the fact that there are human beings in the world who want to make you unhappy, and on and on and on. All that's true. Okay, so what are we going to do about it? Well, at the Ford Motor Company in the 1980s and 90s, 20,000 people did their job. 20,000 people followed instructions. 20,000 people kept their head down. And all of them lost their job on one day because the people who were managing the plant made mistakes and no one wanted to buy the car. And so they just fired everybody. So fitting in didn't help. Doing what you were told didn't help. On the other hand, people who saw what was going on at Ford and left there to go do something they could be proud of didn't get laid off. That the risky thing is actually the thing that doesn't feel risky. So yes, it doesn't make any sense to me to go build a blog and say, I'm super vulnerable and tell everyone all of your fears and all of your bad habits and just put yourself out there hoping that people will punch you in the face. I, I, I'm not proposing that in the slightest. What I am proposing is that you find a small group of people and you figure out how to serve them. And you do it in a way that makes both of you a profit. And if you can do that a little, you can probably do it more. And if you do it long enough, you will make a difference. Sure. And um, would it be fair to say that because of social media and how easier it is to interact with our audience now, that it's possibly easier than ever to find out what it is that makes a difference to people's lives? Because you can just go and interact with them, listen to them, watch them and ask them. Exactly. I'll, I'll leave the asking part out, but I like the listening and the watching part. Um, we know how people behave better than ever before. We know what their dreams are. We know what they aspire to. And if you can get out of the mindset of trying to be a Kardashian, you have this magical ability to say, wow, yes, there are 1,000 fans of Fahrenheit 451, the book, who would do anything to be able to hold this autographed copy that Ray Bradbury signed. How can I serve that group of people? How can I create a circle of book discussion for them? How can I create a conference where they all come together to talk to one another about how this book impacted their life. How can I connect? How can I lead? How can I organize a tribe? And over time, there will be people who don't like what you're doing. Okay, it's not for you. Thanks for coming. But as long as you don't, as long as you realize you don't need everyone, you can do something that appeals to someone. Might I be so bold as to ask why you said I'll leave asking out? Because if you ask people what they want, they will always tell you they want a more convenient, cheaper version of what they have now. A faster horse. That's exactly. And because um, I sometimes think, you know, it takes a Steve Jobs to know what your customers want more than you. Are they not the source of their pains and problems that you can solve? Well, the, the legend of Steve Jobs is an interesting one. Um, you know, I would say that Steve's biggest contribution was grit. Uh, the grit to cancel products, the grit to say, no, we're not going to do that. The grit to insist that something was going to happen. Um, he didn't invent anything. Steve Wozniak invented the personal computer, the Apple II. Uh, other people invented the... 
For years, people have been asking me where I buy my watches. Many of you may know I'm a watch collector, I'm a watch investor, and those as an asset class have done me very well in the last 15 years. I have never shared where I source my watches from or my watch dealer until now. My watch dealer used to be a professional footballer for Manchester United, and he formed a watch brand called Broadwalk. And he sources the higher-end brands like Rolex, Audemars Piguet, Patek Philippe and Richard Mille. I trust him. I've used him for many years. And recently we've done a partnership. Hence, I'm inviting you, if you want to start investing in watches and protect your money from the banks and inflation, to check out Broadwalk. That's B-R-O-A-D-W-A-L-K. And the website is broadwalkgroup.com. The email is sales at broadwalkgroup.com. And please don't share this, but his number is 07496-878-153. Obviously, only message him if you're serious about buying and investing in the higher-end watches. People have been asking me for years, and for the first time ever, you can get access to my watch team. Graphical interface, this touchscreen, all of that stuff. He's not an inventor. He wasn't even a designer. Mm. But what he had was the grit to to make a bet. And it's important to understand that he was wrong at least as often as he was right, maybe more. And we forget that. We, f- we forget all the clunky compromised products. We forget the fact that to this day, Apple does not have a worthwhile online offering of any kind. And so I don't think we should let ourselves off the hook and say, well, he was a special genius and I am not. That instead, what we do is we make an assertion. We assert that if people read this blog post, they would be changed. We assert that if they could buy this book, it would have an impact on them. And we put it in the world. And it probably isn't going to work. So then we do another one. And when I was a book packager, I did 120 books. I pitched more than 1,000 before I sold those 120. And only a few of them were big bestsellers. And then when I became an author, you know, many of the things that I did, like the cover of my book, All Marketers Are Liars, and the title were terrible, just bad mistakes. But if I had avoided bad mistakes by being mediocre at every turn, you and I wouldn't be talking right now. Of course. And uh, how do you feel inside about these, all these things that have happened that you've tried that haven't gone well? Well, on a good day, I'm super proud of them, more proud of them than the things that have worked. Because it's doing the ones that don't work that make you scarce and unique and um, having a shot. The people who come up with one thing and it works the first time out the door and then don't do anything new, that's called luck. And I'm in, I'm in favor of luck, and I hope that good luck befalls all of us. But that's not the work of a professional. A professional signs up to do this work and embraces all of it even when it doesn't work. Um, I think I remember reading in some of your work and listening some some of your stuff on audio that maybe, you know, you, the the books of yours you like the most weren't necessarily the most popular in terms of sales. Would that be true? Yeah, it's interesting. When you ask people about logos, if you say, tell me some logos that you like, they will always pick logos that are associated with brands that they like which is interesting, like the Starbucks logo is a terrible logo. It's just associated with a brand that people like. Um, And the same thing could be said for people uh, like me or like you that have been out there working it. What are your favorite projects? Well, it's easy to say my favorite projects are the ones that worked out. But 
I guess in a sort of perverse way, some of my favorite projects are the ones that people didn't understand. The timing was bad. They didn't work. Uh, I, I wrote a book called Survival is Not Enough. Uh, I, Charles Darwin wrote the foreword, which was difficult because he was dead. And uh, I worked harder on that book than any book I've ever written. And it sold 18,000 copies. And um, the reason is it came out after 9-11. The reason is that people are afraid of evolution. The reason is I misjudged my timing and my audience. But I still love that book. So, you know, it's like uh, your kids. You love them all. And each one has their own unique uh, destiny and attributes. It's interesting you say that, Seth, because I have this weird relationship with my work and my books in that when I'm doing them and I get the concept to get really excited about them and I really love them and then I put them out into the world and then if I ever revisit them, I'm like, oh, <laughs> what was I thinking? Um, what kind of relationship do you have with your work in that way? You are proud of them all in their own way or do you sometimes think, hmm, you know, if I was doing that now, it'd be different? Oh, if I did any of them again, they would be different. But that's why one of the many reasons I don't read my Amazon reviews because I'm not, I'm not going to write that book again. So since I'm not going to write it again, your feedback on how I could write it better doesn't help me. Um, the, the thing is, about 1999, I intentionally changed my voice from being someone who wrote for hire and tried to come up with books that would sell to being someone who wrote books that had a point of view. And so everything I've written since 99, I remain proud of. And I will tell you that there are certain... Um, books on tape and interviews I've done that I listen to over again because it reminds me of the person I want to be. And how is a book different and how were you writing differently with a view to sell versus sharing a point of view? What did you change? Well, so uh, the second book I saw was Professor Herb Barnes on the spot, Spot and Stain Removal Guide. And I have to tell you, I have no affinity for spots or stains. Uh, and then I did books on gardening and books on business. I wrote the very first book ever written on digital cash, uh, but wasn't smart enough to use my advance to buy Bitcoin. Uh, so, you know, the, that work, the professional work of making books that people want to buy, that was my job for 20 years. And I'm glad it was my job. It, I learned a ton. But if you read those books, they weren't written by Seth Godin, the author. They were written by Seth Godin, the person who knows how to make books. And after I sold my company to Yahoo, I didn't have to do anything for a living for a while. And I decided to be an author because I had something to say. And that means I don't write books so they'll sell more copies. I write books because I have something to say. And is there an argument then that your art is better because it's that way and therefore it probably is more commercially viable anyway? Yeah, I'm not sure I want to accept the last part. I know there are peers of mine who sell five to ten times as many copies of a book as I do. That if I was willing to offer people simple answers and shortcuts, uh, if I wrote a book called Simple Answers and Shortcuts, it would sell a million copies because that's what people want. And the Internet has made that significantly worse. Uh, so part of my art is to willfully and intentionally forego commercial benefit because I want to teach people something deeper than that. And, and do, do you think that commercial and artistic balance is hard for some people, especially creatives? I mean, I used to be an artist and I made 
it wasn't about making millions, Seth, but I could I could even pay my bills. So it's like, you know, if I had money coming in, I could have bought better materials, painted better work. I could have been more creative and innovative. I could have took longer making my art better art because I can pay my mortgage and my bills. Yeah, it's worth noting that for 50,000 years of recorded history, human beings did not get paid to write or to sing or to paint. That's That was your avocation. It wasn't your job. And it's only recently it's become your job. So if you think about the distinction between the guys who make Swedish pop and Bob Dylan is that Bob Dylan is not only willing but eager to get booed off stage. He needs that to happen for him to feel like he's making art. And the fact is that even though Bob has made hundreds of millions of dollars with his craft, he hasn't made nearly as much money as the people who know how to churn out pop because that's a business, that's not art. And so this causes a lot of pain for people because in the short run, satisfying an urgent need that someone will pay you for is the best way to pay your mortgage. But as the world is evolving, it turns out it's not as satisfying nor as profitable to keep doing that than it is to dig deeper, to be human, and to seek out connection. So I'm still not sure it's the best way to get rich, but it's probably the best way to be happy as a creative person. Yeah, you know what, like, this just gets my brain going wild. One of my favorite bands is Radiohead, and I've grown up listening to them, and they influenced my art. And it was almost like Tom York, as soon as he felt like he got commercially successful, he completely went the other way, and he just, he just wanted to walk away from it, and he wanted to make art and music that was very different where he wanted to go. And um, that, I think, in a way, takes courage, um, but probably maintained his integrity as an artist. Um, do you have any views on that as a concept? Yeah, that's a, I totally agree. And that's what I have been trying to do and what I've been trying to teach people to do. Because at some point, making a living isn't the point. It's making a difference is the point. And, you know, we live in the richest world in history. And... Uh, there are people just a couple thousand miles away who would give anything to have our mortgage, right? So downsizing, figuring out how to live within your means so that you can live a better life, I think that makes more sense than fitting in mm. all the way to a bigger McMansion. Yeah. The future, Seth, of brand marketing, attention, communication, getting your message out to the world. Where do you see it going and how do you see it changing? Well, the most important shift is the idea of getting the word out. Uh, that's the result. You know, I feel it too. Something isn't working the way you want it to. You say, how can I get the word out? If I could just get the word out, if I could just get on the Today Show, and it doesn't pay. You know, I was on the cover of Entrepreneur Magazine two years ago. And I probably sold 100 copies of my books because of it. The cover of a magazine. It's not like it used to. It's not like it used to be. That's not what causes people to embrace what you're doing. What shifts is when people tell other people. People like us do things like this. And that's a totally different route to market. If you go to market with that mindset of, I'm going to build a core of people who are going to talk about this because there's a benefit to them to talk about it because people like us do things like this. Then you can ratchet that and ratchet that and ratchet that. And that can make all the difference in your world. I 
I personally, and, and this is a bit of a selfish question, Seth, because I'm asking for myself probably as much, if not more than my listeners. Well, that's what makes it a good podcast. <laughs> Thank you. So like, I have these moments where I really want to rant about something that I really think needs to be said. Um, and I had a video on LinkedIn which got 300 and odd thousand views, which for me is a lot of views, and it was like 10 times more than most of my videos. Because I just came out and said that um, all these people saying you've got to get up at 5 a.m. to be successful, even though they're only really just taking photos of themselves on Facebook at 5 a.m. and not doing any work. And I just thought, you know what? People should get up when they want, which is right for them and their circadian rhythm. And, um, you know, if you're an artist and you want to work at 2 in the morning, you do that. Who am I to tell you? And I'm, I went and had a big rant, and it you know, in my little world, went quite viral. And I have these thoughts from time to time, which I passionately believe in, but I also don't want to offend people. I don't want to cause enemies. Well, you are, you know, I understand the question. My question to you is, how does this relate to your desire to do something commercially? Like, how does this help you make a living? What is, what is the, how do you go from my video went sort of viral to that's my job? Mm. I mean, I don't need to make a living anymore in, in, in that regard because, um, you know, I, I looked after myself in that regard by the time I was turned 30. So this podcast for me is just something that I love to do. My videos on LinkedIn and social media. OK, people will find my books and people will find my companies, um, but I, I, I don't do work for any kind of immediate commercial need. OK, so so if it's so if it's not for commercial gain, what is more? mean to you? Why do you want more? More of what? What more means to me is that I'm growing as a person. Um, and, you know, for me, right? boredom and not and standing still is decay and death and loneliness. So, you know, like, yeah. Got it. Okay. So why are you counting how many people watched your YouTube video? Because then it makes me feel like I'm achieving more and I'm growing more because I'm reaching more people. Ah, so now we find the key to the entire conversation. I didn't realize this was going to be a Rob therapy session. Well, it's not therapy. It's <laughs> this is actually really useful for a lot of people. If you are on Facebook or Twitter or YouTube, you are not the customer. You are the product. And if the consumer, the producer, the whatever we want to call ourselves, defines success by a metric that was invented by one of those social networks, you are being tricked into working for them. Now, it is very seductive to look at one's Amazon bestseller chart status. It is very seductive to look how many Facebook friends you have or how many Twitter followers you have, right? And like I mentioned to you how many people read my blog. I do that to level set and help people understand in one sentence my experience, but I actually haven't looked at my statistics in over a year. I don't know. Because it's not helping me with what the work is for. So if you said to me that the purpose of the work is to have a lot of followers, I could give you 20 pieces of advice that people like Gary V have pioneered that would get you more followers. But if that's really the work, you've already know what to do. And you should accept the fact that one of the consequences of that will be that you have to offend people, that you have to be glib, that you have to offer shortcuts. You have to do the stuff that makes the kind of person that spreads a viral video spread a viral video. And they rarely spread viral videos because they are serious and concentrated and require hard work, right? They, they share viral videos because they're controversial or because they're funny or 
something pop. And if you want to be in that business, be in that business. But then don't complain that being in that business involves doing things like that. A bit of self-analysis for, for me here is, I, I think I do to a certain degree measure my reach and impact in my work through how many people I reach. Um, like, you know, I've not sold an ad on my podcast and, and you will be my 240th guest. I don't need to sell ad space. Not that there's anything wrong with that. And, you know, I don't need to monetize or what I might see is butcher my art. Um, but I suppose there's a part of me that thinks I am not enough because I need to reach more people when I already reach a lot of people. And you're never going to reach enough people. So what I'm pushing you to do, and I'm biased here, is to say, if you could never have another customer, or another listener, or another viewer, if the ones you've got are all you've got, if your goal shifted to make stuff for your listeners, not find listeners for your stuff, what would change for you? And how would it be better? Well, I don't, I don't think nothing. I don't think that's the right answer. I think the answer is the work would go deeper, that you would be more patient in helping people see what you want them to see, that you would not worry about shorthand or the other insider stuff that, you know, if, if you compare what kind of, uh, spiritual transaction can occur inside a private spiritual institution that knows its members and isn't going to get any new ones versus what a street corner preacher has to do. They're very different, right? And so you begin with these folks, they're engaged, they're on board. I don't have to sell them on getting on board. They're on board. Now what should I do? How can I take them deeper? How can we go further together? And that turns out to be the best way to not only make an impact, but in the future, make a living. Hmm. Thank you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit on that and um, see where it takes me. Thank you, Seth. So what traits of leaders do you admire and inspires you? Well, um, I think we have to understand the difference between leadership and management. They're different things. Uh, I am not inspired by managers. Managers use authority to get people to do what they did yesterday, but faster and cheaper. Managers uh, have important work to do. They keep the peace. They make the trains run on time. They make sure that your French fries are hot. Um, and management is what we got taught to do. But leadership, leadership is what we do when we're not sure how to do it. And leadership is, uh, seeks enrollment. It can't be mandatory. People have to follow voluntarily. And every time I see someone leading in that way, I'm inspired. Even if they're leading in a direction I don't want to go. The act of leading is uniquely human. There are very few other species that have that sort of leadership going on. And when you, as a human, care enough to say, follow me, that's a brave act. And I love that. Okay. Thank you. Um, I think you're, from my perception, not saying, you know, we're best friends, I don't know you really well, but um, I perceive that you're good at saying no. And um, in fact, I think you said no, said no at least two times to this podcast. Um, and actually, I really like that because if, if people don't reply, uh, I have no feedback. Generally, Pete, I find if people do reply to say no, then it's, it's often a yes for the future. 
Um, so how have you become good at saying no and why do you think saying no is important? Well, I'm not nearly as good at saying no as I wish I was. Um, I say yes too often out of insecurity, uh, out of the feeling of I may never get another chance at this, out of I don't want to disappoint somebody. Uh, but as I've evolved my work, what I've discovered is that what you do all day sort of determines what you do all day. And if I can build an arc where I'm doing things all day that I'm proud of, that I want to do, that further the mission, that's good. Now, in the case of this podcast, it wasn't specific like that. It's just there is a model, not for you, but for others that say if you can get a sort of well-known person on your podcast, you'll get more listeners and you can sell more ads. There's a simple formula. And um, I'm on some list somewhere and so five or 10 times a day, someone asks me to be on a podcast. So I just have to say no out of uh, self-preservation. Otherwise, all I would do all day is go on podcasts. Sure, yeah. Um, and I just like to say I only do interviews with people I want to do interviews with. So um, I just thought that was an important point to make, but, but for you and for my listeners, because I, I, I could certainly have taken the chance to interview many people who would have fit that category of being good for my um, rankings or they could have shared on their social media and I'd have got lots of followers and it would have been irrelevant and people would have thought, Rob, why have you interviewed that person? So I just want to, just want to say thank you for, for that. Um, let, I'd love to talk about your books. Would you like to pick one? Um, it can be your latest one or anyone you'd love to pick and just, you know, talk about why you did it. Uh, okay, I'll do a couple. The uh, first one is the latest, What to Do When It's Your Turn and It's Always Your Turn. It's not easy to get in the United Kingdom because I published it myself. Um, and it's illustrated and I designed it myself as I wrote it. And the reason that I did it was I was trying to reach my fans who don't want to read books and I wanted to give them a tool they could give to their friends who also don't want to read books because I believe a book is a magical Proustian souvenir that when you hand it to somebody, unlike a piece of software, it's completely self-contained. It is what it is. And if we all read it at the same time, maybe we'll make some change together. And it worked. I mean, 150,000 copies uh, for a self-published book is a pretty big deal. And, but for me, what's magical is when a company like General Motors buys 500 at a time and starts using it to talk to one another. Because too often our organizations forget to talk to one another. Uh, the other book I'll mention is uh, a book that my publisher did not want to publish. It's the shortest book I've ever written, and it's done very well in the UK, and it's called The Dip. And The Dip, uh, I wrote in two weeks, and it's about quitting. And as far as I know, it's the only book, or at least at the time, that was written about quitting. And in it, my argument is that we all quit, um, unless you're still taking ballet lessons and playing the trumpet, we all quit at some point various things that we used to do. But too often we quit the wrong things at the wrong time. And my pitch in the book is to realize that in most endeavors that are worthwhile, they're easy to start, fun to start, lots of people applaud you, and they're super at the end when they work. But in between is a dip. And the dip exists to weed out most people because the reason it's valuable is because it's scarce. The thing on the other side is scarce. And the thing that made it scarce is most people quit. So since you know there's a dip coming up, 
right? And I'll use podcasts as an example. The number of people who have started a podcast or a blog is in the millions. But it's not until you get to episode 100 that you're really on a roll. And so the dip hits around episode 40 when most people quit. I listen to that on audio. I love consuming books on audio, and I think some of your books are on Audible and some not. Um, do you have a view on consuming books on audio, i.e., do you think it's changing the way people are reaching listeners? You know, I personally um, sell a ratio of two to one more books on audio than on in paperback. Um, yeah. Yep, me too. Ah, interesting. Yeah, so uh, I, I love audiobooks. Mm. I grew up with audiobooks from the time I was 20. Um, I think they're hugely impactful. They get to a different part of our brain, uh, particularly books that you can listen to more than once. Uh, the two best audiobooks that I can recommend, um, Patti Smith's uh, autobiography, the first uh, one of two volumes, is the best, most heartfelt, beautifully read, touching, moving memoir I have ever encountered called Just Kids. It has nothing to do with any of the topics we've discussed today. Nothing. Um, well, maybe the life of an artist. And the second one is an audiobook called The Art of Possibility that is not easy to get uh, by Roz Zander and Ben Zander. And I listen to it every six weeks, whether I need it or not. Okay. I'm just writing these down for my own benefit here, Seth. What was the Patti Smith one called? Just Kids. Okay. I do like audiobooks. Okay. Um, do you have any philosophies or guidelines that you use that could help other people for sort of time and life management in the, in the, the busy, connected world that we're in now? I think that the idea of work-life balance is very uh, threatening, difficult, and uh, off-putting. I think it's better to just think of it as life and not do work that's killing you so that you can then get back to life. Uh, we have way more freedom than we think we do about how to structure our day. Uh, I haven't watched TV uh, on a broadcast television in 10, 20 years. I don't go to meetings. So since I don't go to meetings and since I don't watch TV, I have seven or eight more hours every day than most people. Um, that's just a choice. And as soon as you make a hard choice, you don't find yourself sweating the balance thing nearly as much. And if you are in a business where you are getting paid by the hour, you're probably a freelancer. And freelancers are different than entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs get paid when they sleep. They build something bigger than themselves. I'm a freelancer right now. I don't have one of my employees talking to you on this podcast. I am talking to you on this podcast. I write all my own books. I like being a freelancer. But I am also aware that as a freelancer, uh, I have to guard my time because uh, I don't have a lot of it. Whereas if I'm an entrepreneur, and I sometimes am an entrepreneur, then my job is not to guard my time. My job is every time I figure out a job to hire somebody else to do it. Because that's how you build something of scale. Sure. Okay, thank you. Um, we're doing good for time. We've, we set a time and we've got a few minutes left. Am I okay to ask you a few more sort of quick fire questions? Sure, let's go for it. Okay, so any hobbies or things you love to do that also inspire your work? Uh, I listen to a lot of jazz and acoustic mu music, and uh, it has definitely transformed the way I think about what it means to make a piece of art. Okay. 
If you had to choose, I don't like binary questions, but I'm, I'm going to test myself to say it, but if you had to choose between audio books or physical books, which one would you do? Well, the problem with an audio book is you can't read it faster. And for a lot of the books that I read professionally, I skim them. Um, for a book I really care about, I think I'd prefer to have it on audio. Okay. Have you ever done the two-time speed button yet? Yeah, that for someone who's trying to be less uh, jumpy and have lower ADD, I have tried it, and I, it's the same reason I don't drink coffee. Right. Okay. Did you used to drink coffee? There was a there was a caffeine cycle in my life years and years ago, but I broke it a long time ago. Right. Okay. Um, being someone who drinks two coffees a day religiously, but quite strong ones. Well, when, um, when you come over next time you're here, uh, I roast my own coffee beans and we'll pull you a, a hand ground espresso. I like to make coffee. I just don't drink it. Right. Okay. Well, um, I'd love to take you up on that one day. Thank you, Seth. Uh, if do you prefer doing keynote speeches or um, using online to get your message out there? I don't do uh, virtual speeches. I think that they're a trick that makes no one happy. I wish that they worked because I hate to get on airplanes. But I am seen by most people and engage with most people online, but not for me to show up and give a speech because that doesn't work. I am finding that Facebook Live does work, but when I show up on Facebook Live, I'm not giving a speech. I'm using it as an interactive medium. Sure. Okay, so you prefer the two-way communication, the, the feedback, the... Yeah, I think you need um, to use every medium for what it's good at. So if there's a microphone in 4,000 people, you probably shouldn't be doing Q&A. You should be speaking to the crowd, and the crowd gets a benefit from being in the room with you and each other. But... If I'm on Facebook Live, it doesn't make sense for me to pretend everyone's in the room because they're not. Everyone's just connected to me. And so by having a Q&A, I can create conversations. Okay. What's your most underrated book? I would say um, All Marketers Are Liars. I think that the ideas in that book about storytelling and placebos and what we choose to believe stand up today better than ever before. They touch on politics and religion and commerce, uh, but calling your reader a liar is probably a stupid idea. <laughs> What's wrong with the world that you'd love to change? Uh, I wish that patience and dignity were the two things that we put highest on our priority lists as opposed to listing them last. Mm quick comment on that it's funny because um it's really snowing over here at the moment seth and because the brits go absolutely mad like the world is over when it snows uh, and i'm gobsmacked how fast people drive on the snow it's like you know that like they just drive so fast um and you know people are killing each other all the time crashing in the snow right behind you sorry a bit of a mini rant here but i just why um do you think like just culture is just making us more impatient? It's yeah, I grew up in Buffalo, New York, which is known around the world for snow. And um, there were two kinds of people in Buffalo. There were people who learned how to drive in the snow, who understood that four-wheel drive does not mean the car stops better. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then there are the amateurs. And it, this is not recent. This has been going on since, I, since the 60s. And I just, it's a miracle that we have given billions of people cars 
and they have not killed each other yet. Yes, very much so. It's just like we don't get snow very much here, so I guess it always surprises us how um, impatient people are. But I think, I mean, I'm 39, and uh, um, certainly over time and having kids has really taught me that patience is a great thing. And sometimes, you know, like there's a lot of advice about being persistent, you know, keep pushing for what you want, but sometimes you can push once too much and you push it away forever. Um, would, would you have any comments on that? I totally agree. I think persistence needs to be accompanied by the word generous. Selfish persistence is always a bad idea. Okay, thank you. So this podcast is called The Disruptive Entrepreneur. Um, and the disruptive doesn't have the same connotation of word as it is in America, where it's sort of popular in the Silicon Valley type world. Um, but what does disruptive mean to you, the word? What does it um, bring to mind to you, Seth? Well, I think it's probably the opposite of the status quo. And when I cook it up with the word entrepreneur, what it means is you are building an asset that people will voluntarily engage with. And that as that asset ratchets forward, it will change the status quo in ways that the people who touched it are glad it did. Thank you. And then finally, uh, I know my listeners would love to follow your work. Where would you like us to follow your work? Uh, type Seth into your search engine to find my blog. And uh, if you want to see the AltMBA, it's at altmba.com. We'd love to have you join us. We also run the marketing seminar at themarketingseminar.com. Seth, you've been very kind. I've really enjoyed this. Um, so thank you. That was fun. Thank you. <laughs>